Last December, a team working at the National Ignition Facility in California achieved a milestone in controlled nuclear fusion energy. In this episode of the American Scientist podcast, we're talking with Annie Critcher from Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. She's the principal designer of the first fusion experiment ever to achieve ignition, with fusion reactions producing more energy than they consume. That's a critical step toward building a viable fusion power plant. I'm Corey S. Powell, Special Projects Editor at American Scientist. Nuclear fusion has the potential to generate tremendous amounts of energy with no greenhouse emissions and minimal radioactive waste. Getting it to work in a controlled manner has proven extremely challenging, however. Most experiments apply intense magnetic fields to contain a hot, wriggling hydrogen plasma. The National Ignition Facility is different. It bombards a small pellet with 192 precisely timed laser beams, causing the pellet to implode and to reach pressures of more than 100 billion Earth atmospheres. The recent success of this approach, known as inertial confinement fusion, offers new hope that fusion could become an important part of the world's future energy supply. To, to anybody who's been following the, the saga of fusion for the years or the decades, it's clear that it's a very, very difficult problem to solve. What, what makes fusion such a difficult problem? You know, why is it so hard to model? Why is it so hard to cut it? to control this thing? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, the thing that makes it so difficult to control and model is that we need extreme conditions. We need extreme temperatures. In ICF, we also need extreme densities. Um, so we're reaching pressures that are uh, more than two times the center of the sun and temperatures that are more than five times the center of the sun in our experiments. So we're making basically the most extreme plasma state that you can make on earth. Since that's not been done before, there's quite a bit we don't know about the material science. So let's um, talk a little bit about 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 the National Ignition Facility in in particular, and, what, and kind of what the work that you're doing there. Yeah, great. So I'll just give a brief description of the experiment, and so then it will put some of the modeling challenges I think into better context. So um, in these experiments, we have laser beams that come inside and hit the inside of a cylindrical can that's a high Z can. And that creates a very intense radiation bath, but there's quite a bit of low-density plasma physics that goes on, non-LTE-type physics, non-local thermodynamic equilibrium physics that goes on in the HALROM. Um, so we have to be able to model that condition, and then we also have to model the plasma conditions of the implosion as it's imploding in. So after we create this intense radiation bath, um, inside of this bath sits a capsule, a spherical capsule, um, and it, in our experiments, it's made out of diamond. Um, and then inside of that spherical capsule sits deuterium and tritium fuel. And what we do is when we make this intense radiation bath, that heats up the outside of the capsule that holds the fuel, that explodes the outside of the capsule, and that, in a rocket-like effect, sends the remaining capsule and the fuel inward and squeezes it. So we're taking something roughly analogous to the size of a basketball and squeezing it down to the size of a pea. So in reality, we're taking something the size of a BB and squeezing it down to half of a human hair. <laughs> so we're squeezing all this material down to an extremely small volume, extremely high pressures, and reaching very, very high temperatures. But as the material is coming in, it's not just the end state that's hard to model. 
it's the entire way in that's hard to model as well. So as we're coming in, there's many, many states along the equation of state or density temperature pressure relationship that we don't understand about the materials we're trying to implode just because there's no experimental data. Basically, these are like astrophysical plasmas. So we basically transit this uh, phase space called warm dense matter. But basically, as we're coming in along the temperature density pressure relationship curve, um, it's very difficult to model how ionized the plasma is. So you get these very partially degenerate, extreme, uh, partially ionized plasmas where we can't calculate things like the conductivity and the opacity. And th- th- this, these are the plasmas that are blowing out uh, when, you, when, the, when the lasers are hitting? Basically, we actually have issues with all the different phases <laughs> of, of the system are, are like plasmas that are really not typically, that are very difficult to model. So the plasma that the HALRAM creates is difficult to model. So can, you the way define, the, can you just define the HALRAM for a second? Yeah, yeah, sure. Let me, I didn't give a complete picture. So the HALRAM is a hollow can made up of a high Z material, so gold or depleted uranium. Um, And the lasers come in and hit the inside of this can and create a plasma that ablates into the can, but also creates a high temperature, 3 million degree radiation bath. So uh, we have to get things like how the laser beams coming in transport through this plasma that's expanding into the hall room. That's very difficult to do. We're also intentionally taking beams and giving energy from one set of beams to another set of laser beams to try to get a symmetric drive, that's difficult to model. Um, So modeling the symmetry has been very difficult. And then uh, the ablated plasma is also difficult to model. These are are, um, highly ionized ablated plasmas. You have a little bit more experience with those types of plasmas, but then the plasmas that come in and get compressed, and then the final hotspot plasma that reaches those extreme conditions, those are even more difficult to model. So you have some multiple overlapping plasma physics challenges. What is the material, the the ablated part, what is the material that you're you're basically blowing out to create the implosion? Yeah, so the capsule that sits in the middle of this can or HALROM, that contains the fusion fuel and the material that that capsule is made out of in our experiments is, we call it high-density carbon. So when you're doing this, you're dealing with temperatures and pressures and conditions that there really is no existing physics. How do you model something when you're going into unfamiliar regimes like that? So we do have we have some low pressure data in single points of parameter space that we use to benchmark our equation of state models to. And then we have our our theory, our our transport models, um, our radiation transport models, hydrodynamics models, and we sort of benchmark these models as we go to experimental data, like integrated experimental data. So um, previously I mentioned we don't have a lot of data to support the basic physics models or to test them, but we have generated already at NIF a lot of integrated data sets, which is you do an experiment where all this complicated physics is happening, and then you, you do a, a after-the-shot simulation to try to match all of the observables from that experiment. It's like an integrated check on how all the modeling is doing. And the, the integrated modeling is kind of your job, that's, or, or, you're, or, you're, or you're in charge of, that, of that, that aspect of what NIF does. So you have to piece together all these different parts of the model? 
So, yeah, so integrated modeling is basically trying to model the entire system from laser hitting HALROM to ignition and, and what comes out of it. So it's modeling how the lasers interact with the gold can, the golden depleted uranium can, how that implodes the capsule and, and how that does it symmetrically. Um, and then modeling the plasma physics conditions in the center of the dense plasma that we create. Now, now there was a long-standing goal of, of achieving a, a, a break-even reaction at uh, the National Ignition Facility, and it took quite a while to get there, that first breakthrough experiment that you had in, in 2021. What were the challenges? I mean, you, you sort of alluded to the complexity of this. I'm, I'm wondering, sort of more specifically, when you're trying to deal with all these different parts of the modeling, what were the difficulties that you encountered? So there's quite a bit of kind of simultaneous optimizations that had to occur. Um, when NIF first started out, it went it went for like the highest yielding potential design that we had, um, the highest potential gain design. And that design had issues or uh, it was more susceptible to hydrodynamic instabilities. And so it just didn't work. Um, so there's a lot of sort of things where when you, you your model will say one thing and when you actually go to do the experiments, you'll find out either you're missing physics or um, you can't you can't calculate that physics because you don't have the resolution or there's something that you don't understand. And so we're, these are ultra high convergence, tried to squeeze it down too much and it just, it just uh, mixed like crazy. So the, the capsule material would get into your hot plasma and radiate that energy away and it wouldn't ignite. Over the course of the last several years, what we've done is um, try to increase the scale of the implosion. And then jumping back a little bit before that, starting with the initial NIF experiments that mixed quite a bit, we first backed off on, on the type of gains that we could potentially get to by going to um, a slightly less converged implosion. And even though the, the theoretical maximum yield was lower, it reached much higher yields. That was the high foot. And then we went, we switched from plastic to diamond ablators, and that made quite a big difference. And so we worry about a lot of engineering features in the target that can seed hydrodynamic instabilities too. So there's like the intrinsic hydrodynamic instabilities. We have the capsule isn't just floating in the center of the hull room. It's actually held there with a very thin tent. And that tent on the plastic capsule was creating jets of material that came into your hotspot. So even with the less converged design, we were still jetting material in. So then we moved to diamond ablators and got that sort of behaving reasonably well at very small scale. So that means the initial capsule we had that we were imploding was, wasn't big enough for high yield. Given all the trade-offs and optimizations for that design, we were maxed out in our driver capability. We didn't have any more laser energy to play with to increase the size of this thing. Over the last several years, we've been working to rebalance optimizing what's good for the implosion and what's good for the hull ROM together, because they're usually not the same thing, um, to increase the size of this implosion, hit all of the metrics that we want to hit, and do it with the same amount of laser energy, with no more laser energy to do it. So, you know, there's several key aspects we care about. We want to increase the size of the implosion. But when you do that, it's a more massive target. So if you don't have more laser energy to blow off the material and implode 
that extra mass, then it will be going really slow. The implosion goes slower. Mm-hmm. And it's that mechanical work of the implosion is is what's doing work on your hot plasma. It's how you get to these extreme conditions is you're basically squeezing the material with a piston, with a spherical piston. And if you can't get that piston going fast enough, then you can't squeeze the material fast enough. So one one big challenge was we don't have any more laser energy to drive it. We have to make the hull round that surrounds it more efficient. So for a given amount of laser energy we put in, we have to get to higher temperatures. And so there's a lot of work around trying to do that and also being able to do this symmetrically. Mm-hmm. So when you're trying to make the hull run more efficient, it's about size and losses. So we had to make the hull run smaller compared to the capsule. And what that does is that doesn't allow for your laser beams to pass by the capsule and go where you want them to go to get a really nice uniform radiation bath that surrounds the capsule. And so there's quite a bit of modeling that went into exactly how to all the powers were defined on each laser beam to exactly get a symmetric radiation drive during the entire laser pulse. So the entire laser pulse, we don't just blast the target with all the laser energy in one instance. We actually define a very specific power versus time profile with three distinct steps in this profile um, so that we can uh, shock compress the piston. What's the, what's the time duration that you're talking about here? Yeah, it's about nine nanoseconds. So nine billionths of a second. <laughs> and But we define the, the powers are defined on like, you know, the, the 50-ish picosecond level. And, and we very carefully tailor this. And then on some beams, we have really low powers and some beams have really high powers. And that's so that we can get it to be symmetric at all times as the plasma is coming in and filling into the whole ROM. And then in addition to defining the powers on the beams, we also define how we transfer energy so we can actually have one beam give energy to another beam. It's like a plasma gradient. So we can deflect energy from one beam to another. So there's quite a bit of development um, and simulation that went into trying to keep it symmetric while making it more efficient. And then of course we care about things like uh, the stability. So mixing of the material into the hotspot, we always care about that can be um, caused by like the tent that holds it. There's also a really small two micron field tube which um, is a tiny little tube that goes into your capsule, two microns in diameter, two microns, and a human hair is like 50 or 60 microns in diameter. This is two microns in diameter. That's actually how we get the deuterium tritium fuel into the capsule. That little fill tube sticking into the capsule can send a jet of capsule material into your hot plasma and radiate the energy away. It's a symmetric element in there. It's asymmetric, but worse, the the bigger issue is that the capsule material is high Z, and so it's higher Z, and so if it goes shoots into your plasma material, it very quickly radiates the energy away from the hot plasma and cools it down. And that's also one of the biggest challenges to model is we have to be able to model very fine scale elements in our target to the two micron level and and also capture the hydrodynamic stability of those features. So we we worry about the symmetry. We worry about getting the capsule to go fast enough. We worry about mixing of the ablator material into the hot plasma. And then we also worry about um, you have to keep the oven hot for the whole implosion time. So your capsule is coming in and 
reaching its smallest volume, you don't want to turn off the oven before it reaches the smallest volume because then you lose some of the compression. And so that's another aspect is when you're playing with a limited amount of laser energy to create your oven, how you use that to get it going fast enough, to keep it hot enough, to do it symmetrically. And so the biggest issue here is trying to reach just the right conditions in the hot plasma that actually the fusion takes over and heats the plasma itself. So without self, what we call self-heating, we would never reach ignition conditions mm-hmm. um, in these experiments. It, it, it bootstraps up the temperature. And we could never do that just by doing mechanical work on this material. So out of the fusion reaction comes a neutron and helium and the the neutrons escape, but the helium gets reabsorbed and that carries a lot of energy with it. And so that self-heats the plasma and then it very rapidly increases in temperature and that sort of ignites the fuel and that's what allows us to burn up more of the remaining fuel. So the stuff that's coming in doing work on the hotspot is actually a fuel piston. It's a little bit of the ablator, but it's mostly fuel piston coming in that's kind of a cooler temperature. Once you can ignite the little bit of material in the middle, then that burns through the rest of your piston. And so right now we're trying to burn up more and more and more of the piston that we use to implode it. And it's sort of a race against time because all these things like asymmetries, mixing, um, and even if you can't tamp the implosion well enough, all these things are losses. So we're trying to get it to implode, ignite, and stay together long enough that we can burn up as much of the fuel before it explodes, before the thing's over. So in an ideal sense, you'd get it coming in, you'd reach ignition conditions, and you would burn up all of the DT fuel in the capsule. Right now, we're at about 4% burn up at these yield levels. And and one big lever arm here is getting uh, extra confinement, and that's what led to the latest result. So now jumping back to your first question, um, (laughs) leading up to 21.0808, so the 2021 experiments, um, when we first increased the scale of the implosion, it took a long time to sort of balance and optimize all those things I mentioned. Um, But we actually started out a little bit too big, um, and it was only 50 microns difference. So again, the size of a human hair for the initial size of the capsule. We couldn't quite balance all the things like keeping the oven on long enough because the capsule, it's bigger, it takes longer to come in. Were you keeping the size of the deuterium tritium pellet? Was that itself staying constant while you were changing everything around it? That's correct. Um, We have played around with that before too. So the deuterium tritium isn't a solid pellet inside of the capsule. It's actually a layer of frozen ice, deuterium tritium ice, just inside of the capsule and then gas in the middle. And we've changed things like the thickness of the capsule that holds ice. We've changed the thickness of the ice. We've changed the size of the capsule, which changes the radius of the ice. But for most of the things that have worked in the last several years, the thickness of that ice, of the DT ice layer was the same level. So part of that was like getting that right too. And then just making the capsule 50 microns smaller allowed us to rebalance everything um, to the optimal level. That's what ended up leading to the burning plasma results. And then a few more changes to get a little bit more efficient HALROM, keep the oven on longer, reduce what we call how much it coasts in. That led to the August experiment. And then 
from the August experiment to this new experiment, we made changes to increase the confinement to burn up more of the fuel. So now we've got to ignition. The idea is now we put more emphasis on trying to assemble not only a hot plasma that will ignite, but trying to assemble with it a piston that will keep it together longer so it can burn up more. And in this case, instead of adding more fuel, because we weren't burning up all the fuel, we added more of the diamond of later. So we used a little bit more laser energy, uh, 7% more laser energy. So it went from the laser driver was an enhanced from 1.9 megajoules to 2.05 megajoules. And then uh, increasing using that a little bit extra laser energy to make the diamond thicker, let us hold the implosion together longer and burn up more of the fuel. So from my perspective out in the journalism world, there was a, there was a lot of interest in, uh, and a little bit of concern that after the, the 2021 result looked very promising, that you actually had a hard time replicating that result. Um, you're starting to give me a sense of why that was hard to replicate. It sounds like you know you, you solved a lot of problems leading up to that. It, at that point, what were the what were the lingering uncertainties? What made it hard mm. to 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 build on that? Yeah, that's a great question. So that plasma was designed to ignite under really good experimental fielding conditions. We did like four attempts at a repeat directly following that. Unfortunately, all of the targets that we shot had what we call quality issues. So just like I mentioned, the, the tent can send jets of uh, capsule material into your hot plasma and cool it. The fill tube can. We got that under control. We got the symmetries under control that, that we can control. However, if dust, you know, thing, particles the size of bacteria can get into your capsule during fabrication, can fall on the top of the capsule. Um, in one case, we had a, uh, what well, I considered to be a largish type um, flake, but really it's just a tiny flake on this capsule. It sends a big chunk of capsule material in and it glows like crazy. So we call them meteors. You can see like in your x-ray pictures of the hot plasma, you see this little like contaminant is radiating all the energy away. Unfortunately, on two or two or three of the experiments that killed the implosion. And then on the other one, we had a really big unintentional asymmetry, which isn't something that you design. It's like we call it an odd mode asymmetry. You have 192 laser beams. Half are coming in from the bottom. Half are coming in from the top. For example, if you have the top half, the lasers fire just a percent different than the bottom half. That sends a, a uniformity that's not like in the design. You don't want that. You want them to fire top to bottom. But if they don't, then that can squeeze your implosion and have it shoot out to one side. And then, you know, as you can imagine, if you don't have a nice spherical piston and it's squirting out in one direction, you can't squeeze the plasma to ignition conditions. So we had more issues getting to ignition because we were right at that boundary. Mm -hmm. And then that motivated to try to be more robust to these issues. And so the first test we did with the extra laser energy and the thicker ablator it was squashed like a pancake, but even though it was squashed like a pancake, it still produced nearly as much yield as the 2021 experiment, which was perfectly uh, spherical. So that was a good indication that, oh, even if we have this big perturbation, we can still get really high yields. And then we fixed that. The only difference between that, that was in September of 2022. The only difference between that experiment and December was uh, making it more spherical. 
And that increased the yield by like two and a half up to the, the gain experiment. Mm -hmm. So the idea is, uh, let's be more robust to flakes on the capsule or asymmetries. And that's what we did in the last uh, design changes. Yeah, I, I was wondering, even going all the way back to the earlier change of switching from plastic to the to the diamond ablator, how much of that is trial and error? And how much does the, the modeling guide you of exactly where you need to go, what you need to adjust? Yeah. No, that's a, it's a great question, and it's not. It wasn't just the tent. Um, we we did do an extensive. It was as a L two level two milestone for the laboratory to do an extensive modeling comparison of the different ablator choices. One might be better for one thing, but worse for another thing. It's more difficult to control some of these defects in the capsule. But we did model that the, it should be less sensitive to the tent that holds it in the center of the harm. It should be less sensitive to that. So that was um, something that we were able to predict with modeling. And then the other, uh, the other main advantage that the diamond has is because it's higher density, you can make the shell thinner. And so the laser pulse is... The time of the, how long it lasts, its duration is defined by a lot of things. One of them is how thick that layer is, because it has you have to give time for one shock to pass through, then another shock, then a third shock. And so with the thinner ablators, you could make the laser pulse a lot shorter, which means we just we just knew that would be better for controlling symmetry because mm -hmm. it's hard to get the lasers in when you have a, a harm that's being plasma filled. So a large part of what the details of what we did uh, to get this to work were experimental iteration with our detailed uh, modeling efforts together. So I'm curious, when you were going into that December 2022 run, did you have a feeling of, okay, we've, we've modeled the hell out of this thing, I, I feel good about this, or do you always leave a measure of uncertainty because, as you say, there there's so many random variables that you can't you can't model and you can't anticipate. Right. Yeah. So as far as the potential for the design change, I felt pretty confident about that. We had three independent assessments, including a, a machine learning assessment, a, a cogsim assessment. Mm -hmm. So I asked various groups to say take, you know, a different version of a model and model it. And and everybody sort of said the same thing. This should give higher yield it should be more robust. However, as you said, there's always something that could potentially happen that even if you're more robust, um, you shoot the thing off to the side enough, it won't ignite. And, and that's always going to be like a possibility um, until we can make it more and more robust. Um, so yes, of course, it's like the, I couldn't even sleep the night before the shot, hardly. <laughs> also, like when you make the symmetry changes, um, there's no, there's no, that is really, it's so hard to model that we don't rely on models for the final symmetry check. We realize, so there's like, we set the symmetry during part of the laser pulse. Um, so when I say set the symmetry, it means um, figuring out those powers versus time. But then we also, using the models, but then we also have a semi-analytical uh, scaling and theory to set how much we're transferring energy from beam to beam because the models don't get that right. And both of those things had to come together on this one shot to work. And I didn't know if it was going to overshoot. I mean, if it overshoots by just a little bit, it's not going to work. I am curious, how big is your modeling team? Like, what, what, how many people are working on this 
problem altogether because I realize I'm I'm talking just to you, but it's not just you. Yeah, so we have people looking at various aspects of our implosions. In the integrated modeling team, it's about six people. And then in the entire modeling area, we have people looking at like focused uh, capsule physics, focused, what we call focused harm physics. So they model experiments that are specifically set up to test one piece of the physics that then goes back into the modeling. Overall, it's around 30-ish people, 30 to 40 people. Okay. I'd love to hear a little more about sort of them, what what you learned from the successes of that December 2022 run. Uh, obviously, it validated a lot of the modeling that you'd done, but what did it tell you about kind of where to, where to go next for for further improvements? What what kind of data did you get from it? So the intent is that you have uh, more tamping and more confinement, which some of the data that can confirm that is um, some of the primary neutrons from the fusion reactions do get downscattered. So that what that means is they knock onto the dense fuel piston and they scatter to a lower energy. So you actually measure the neutron spectrum. Um, and we can determine from that how well we've assembled the piston or if it's better than before for the tamping. We saw that that works. So that's really important because the improvement to burn up more of the fuel to hold it together longer did work. Another thing that we observed from the experiment was that we had less of this mixing on the outside of the ice. So the ice layers being accelerated by the carbon ablator together with the carbon ablator, and that interface can have uh, Rayleigh Taylor mixing, so high, like a fluid mixing mm-hmm. so at that interface, and that can make the outside of your ice kind of what we call dirty ice. And it's mixed with the ablator on the outside. It won't burn as efficiently. And so we have our our X-ray diagnostics that look at where the X-rays are coming from and at different energies. And then we have uh, neutron pictures. So we can use the neutron images. So we can image where the neutrons are coming from. And we can image where the X-rays are coming from. And if their size is different, then we know some of that extra X-ray emission isn't coming from the fact that you're making a hot plasma. It's coming from this contaminant region. And what we learned is that the one of the design changes was the thicker ablator actually should help improve this Rayleigh-Taylor mixing. And that amount of emission, uh, the contaminated emission did go down compared to the previous experiments. So that was great. So we know now that we have extra tamping, we have better stability. We have two experiments at high yield that kind of show that we have more margin to reasonable perturbations. The obvious next steps we did have in the plan is we're gonna go full steam ahead, continue to try to go thicker with the ablator and then do that, we have more laser energy coming and we're also trying to increase the efficiency further of the HALROM to go even thicker. So so the design directions right now, the most promising one is just increasing how thick that diamond is and maybe the ice as well. So we know that the, the increased density of the fuel piston is really important from this experiment. So we have other ways to try to get that up as well, uh, which we're trying to do. You mentioned earlier that you were only getting about about four percent of that 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 deuterium tritium pellet consumed. Uh, was that that four percent was for the this most recent experiment? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you're you're not going to get to a hundred, but 
how much higher do you think you can get based on your models? Yeah, so so we're at about three megajoules of fusion output, and just based on realistic assumptions, I think twenty megajoules from this particular design. But we can do design changes to get it going faster from where it is now, to hold it together longer, and and you can make with design changes that could be higher than twenty. But I think twenty is sort of like a a realistic kind of perfect scenario for that capsule, twenty megajoules. So. Now, when you talk about um, ignition, uh, or, or when you talk about, or rather, when you talk about breaking of getting more energy out than you're putting in, you're not looking at the total system. You're looking at the at the, actual, the, the, the laser input. How much further would you need to get to get to system wide break even? Like how 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 big is that gap? It's it's big for NIF. NIF wasn't designed to be an efficient fusion energy generating laser it's it was just designed to make it happen to make it work and so the wall plug energy of nif is actually like 350 megajoules out of that 350 megajoules we only get two megajoules on target Mm -hmm. laser energy and then what we got out was three megajoules so we got more fusion energy out than laser energy on target but a working fusion plant would need to significantly increase the efficiency of the wall plug to the laser energy. And we need higher gain designs. So we, we need to in- increase the amount of laser energy on target for a given wall plug energy. And we need to increase the amount of fusion energy out that we burn up, uh, increase the burn up for a given amount of laser energy in. And a realistic prototype, prototype fusion power plant would be a gain of 30 and right now we're at a gain of 1.5 and kind of a realistic operating uh, plant with, with newer laser systems would be like a gain of 100. We're a lot closer than we used to be. Um, and it's sort of proof of principle of what, what we did, but it's still quite a long ways to go for fusion energy. Right. I think you know, that, that, that was obviously a big question that came up after the press conference. There's a lot of hope, uh, a lot of anticipation attached to fusion energy. and you know, I felt like part of my job in the media was to balance to those two sides and to explain you know, why this is, in fact, a really big deal and why we are still, in fact, very far away from, you mm. know, this is not, you know, this is not a prototype of a fusion power plant. But you were alluding to one of the final questions I wanted to ask is, in terms of, you know, technology and, and modeling, where would you need to go to build something that was actually designed as an inertial confinement fusion power plant rather than as the the kind of experimental facility that NIF is, what what would be different in the approach or where would you go from here to build on your success? The modeling, uh, one big aspect here is being able to really understand high convergence. So you can get a lot of gain out with the high convergence, you know, going back to the original NIF idea. If we can truly understand those implosions and how to work around the issues that we had back then, they have higher potential for more gain out. Um, and so being able to model those better would be huge. I, you know, continuing to improve the HALROM modeling is really important because um, that's how you can make it more efficient at that step and try different shapes of the HALROM, for example, is one thing we're trying to make it more efficient. For technology, there's quite a bit of technology to overcome. One is we can't, in a working fusion plant, you can't have these cryogenic uh, frozen ice layers because it would take too much time to kind of get that system shot at the rate that it needs to be shot at. So we're looking into sort of a layer of ice of fuel. We're looking at wetted foam. 
a very low density foam that has a liquid layer of deuterium tritium inside. Hmm. And so um, generating new designs that can work with a wetted a DT wetted foam uh, uh, and still achieve high gain. So this like going along the path of trying to be robust to things like the laser misfiring or particles in the capsule, that's going to be even more important for a fusion plant. So designs that continue to be more robust to, you know, the harsh conditions of a fusion plant or you had to shoot the target into the chamber at really high speeds. So generating a new way, a new design to hold the capsule in the center, that's not going to be a tent where the capsule can move around, you know, because then it would be an, an asymmetry issue. So there's a lot of sort of technology and design improvements that need to happen. And in terms of the modeling, uh, being able to understand and predict high convergence, meaning being able to squeeze the, the plasma down more um, with, uh, these are things that aren't just putting more energy in, like there's other ways to squeeze the plasma down better, reaching higher compression. If we could understand that, that's a huge gain for the amount of laser energy you put in and then making the radiation drive more efficient is another huge gain. Uh, also just that you would need a rapid cadence, uh, that you wouldn't have the luxury of, you know, of, yeah, weeks between experiments, but you talking about right. <laughs> second, 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 second. Um, I assume that that itself is also, you know, a you know a, a modeling issue as well as a technology issue of of how do you how would you make inertial confinement work at that kind of the kind of rapid right. need for for a continuous energy stream. Yeah, so they're talking about like it depends on the specifics of the plant, but some are like once a second, some are ten times a second firing. Depending on the size of your laser chamber, that means you have to, if you're doing it that quickly, you have to shoot the target in at very high um, accelerations to reach the center. And then everything has to sort of be positioned just so, right, to get the symmetry as you're shooting this thing in so you can go pop, pop, pop. Some of the big challenges are, you know, not having these asymmetries in the hall room that just kill your implosion. If a tent bends or is off center, you can't you can't shoot a target in with a tent that holds a capsule because the capsule won't be centered anymore. For example, there's other things like the ice, you know, the ice or a liquid foam might be better for this, but it could slosh around and that could make it not uniform. So even if we got really really good at making uniform targets at high volume and very rapidly, which is one of the reasons it takes us so long right now to do experiments, the design has to change to, to be able to do this at 10 hertz. It's not just like, can we make the targets that we're making now faster? Um, and right now, we, I mean, we have an R&D effort, but it's like compared to something that's production scale, it's not, it's not that. We do have laser, the laser technology to fire at that rep rate is is available already. It's sort of getting all the other engineering pieces. So it's sort of like after this experiment, we check the box on the physics requirements. And now it's it's like really hard engineering stuff. <laughs> plus like plus more physics, applied physics, because we have to change the designs. Yeah, but if you think it's not going to happen tomorrow, but this is sort of the start of something that, you know, over time people have done really awesome things and it took a long time from the first flight, right. To have commercial right. flights. So, um, I am hopeful. The other aspect of your work, which because people are so excited about the, the fusion energy aspects, they don't really talk about the nuclear stockpile aspects so much mm -hmm. in the, in the public stories, 
but I'd, I'd love to hear how much this this sort of modeling these theoretical advances how much that applies to, to the the weapons aspect to the weapons maintenance mm-hmm. weapons research is is this break even research directly connected to the the weapons research or does it kind of exist in parallel so being able to test our models in this extreme plasma physics regime so it's testing the integrated modeling it's measuring the plasma physics of these extreme types of plasma. So you can reach material conditions that you can't otherwise reach and study them with really, really high precision diagnostics. All those things are directly relevant for understanding it, keeping a safe and reliable deterrent. There's also other experiments that can look at detailed about where you're trying to isolate one part of the the physics and study that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's just the fact that these implosions, the ignition implosion generated so many neutrons that we can use that neutron source to support the stockpile. So one actually on the GAIN experiment, we fielded one such diagnostic for the first time. So it was like the first time we had customers and it worked and it was awesome because I was really worried about that. So they they have a diagnostic to sort of look at survivability of components in an intense neutron environment, which mm-hmm. you can only create there. So like survivability is a big one. Um, survivability, materials studies, uh, reaching these extreme states is, is relevant and other focused experiments. Final question, uh, since and you're pushing the experimental envelope and you're pushing the, the modeling envelope simultaneously, I'm wondering how much it feeds back the other way. You know, have you have you learned new things and how to model plasma physics and how to model these extreme conditions just from watching, oh, okay, now we've got more data to work from. We can, you know, we can we can sort of update the models. You know, how much how much has the model yeah. as a result of that? It does quite a bit, actually. Um, so we have various ways that that the data feeds back into the modeling. A nice example of that is in the in the Haram plasma. We had uh, like um, kinetic effects in in the plasma that were resulting in sort of um, diffusing part of the density of the plasma in the the Haram. And based on the focused experiments that were done, um, we knew that we had to include that physics in the modeling to accurately represent what was going on in the Haram. And then other things like find out where there's gaps in your understanding, like being able to model the higher convergence stuff. And and some things we've figured out and some things we haven't. A lot of it's trying to update our material response sort of understanding in these extreme conditions, um, which is like a physics model, and figuring out what physics we have to include that's not in the models already. Because we're modeling a, a big system and there's microphysics going on, a lot of times we have to use reduced order models. So it's figuring out how you know how to benchmark those reduced order models to to accurately represent the experiment. Okay. Uh, well, thank you so much. Listen, I, I really appreciate your time and your thoughtful answers on all this and kind of rolling with sort of bouncing back and forth between the, the more technical and the more general aspects of your work. I'm also just excited to have a chance to talk to you because... It's uh, it's an experiment that we've discussed a lot. And I've been in a lot of conversations about, and so okay. <laughs> it's, an, it's an honor to have somebody from the source. Oh, give awesome! Me the, the inside story of it. Okay, well, listen, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you again. Yeah, thanks. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist Magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. I'm Corey S. Powell, Special Projects Editor at American Scientist. Thank you for joining us.